Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Shaylee Garg, CEO and founder of Global Fair, a building materials procurement platform that's raised $22 million in funding. Shaylee, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you for having me on board. Thank you. No problem. Super excited to have you here. And like we're joking there, the pre-interview, thank you for taking this end of day on a Friday. Really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, as I was saying, let's end it with a bag. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. So to kick things off, can we just start a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, a quick about myself. I am a civil engineer by trade coming from a very small cords manufacturing family in India. I worked the, at PNG before Global Fair, wherein saw efficient manufacturing at scale for the world and then started Global Fair. At Global Fair, we are effectively a Southeast Asia to U.S. play for cross-border building materials. We are in India, Vietnam, and U.S., supplying in 36 states in U.S., did our seed and Series A. Series A was led by Lightspeed uh, last year and would soon be going for our next fundraise next year. Amazing. A few questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Well, uh, interesting question. So I personally believe, Brad, in creating a legacy and generational wealth that it starts fueling entire countries' growth, right? As, as not a region, not a small segment. So a particular founder or let's say visionary that I love the most, especially coming from India, is, um, you know, Ambani, Mukesh Ambani, who is the chairperson of Reliance Industries. And and while he inherited a lot of the business, but he spent it in such a manner that it literally fueled the entire country's growth for this decade, right? So I really love what new age angle he could bring to an extent that now he is the Reliance Industries is one of the leading industries in terms of tech in Asia, not just in India. And another question we like to ask, and the goal here is to you know, really understand kind of behind the scenes. What I always tell guests is this doesn't have to be a business book. The books that we're really interested in are going to be the personal books. So we got this from an author named Brian Holiday, and he calls them quake books. So he defined a quake book as a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any books like that come to mind? I love the book called Never Split the Difference, right? It's about um, negotiating in life. And the main crux of that book is negotiate as if your life depends on it, right? It's written by a former FBI agent and negotiator, FBI negotiator. So I, I really love that as, you know, being a founder, because not just being a founder, quite frankly, even in your personal life, I think you're always negotiating. Right. So, so that's one. The second book I really love the most um, or, or correlated with was uh, it's called Voltage Effect. And it's more business book, but, you know, it's about how do you turn ideas into great ideas. Basically, it says that every unsuccessful book is unsuccessful in its unique way, but every successful idea has a commonality in it. Right. So I really love that concept of the book and, and uh, relate to it, quite frankly. 
Nice. I've read the first one. I haven't read the second one, but that sounds like a good read. So I'll add it to the Amazon cart here after the interview. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into global fare. So how we like to approach this is we, we like to talk about the problem. So let's start there. What is the problem that global fare solves? So we're trying to make uh, cross-border procurement bread very, very easy and hassle-free, as similar to buying from a next-door neighbor, right? So construction materials is a very, very conventional sector. And in that, especially with 80% of material being imported in the United States, a lot of it coming from China and Southeast Asia, what we want to do is make that entire transaction procurement so hassle-free that for someone, it seems like they're buying from a next-door neighbor using technology. Wow. Amazing. And you have that pitch very clear. So I think you've probably said that a few times in the past. (laughs) Almost every single day, every single night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then talk to us about the marketplace. So when you're building a marketplace, I guess there's the, always the chicken and the egg problem. How did you, you factor that in and, and what did you focus on first? So first and foremost, for us, it was always about getting the fundamental of business right, right? So to nail, understand the manufacturing and cross-border exports, you know, cross-border supply chain, and then build the tech that will make that efficient, right? So for us, it marketplace came in second, first came in the problem, right? So we always said that, okay, COVID, COVID disrupted the entire supply chain. Let's let's look at the industry which got impacted the most, which was construction materials. Since I come from a quartz, very, very small quartz manufacturing family, I knew a lot about the material, you know, on the supply side. So we said, let's start there and see how can technology add that reliability and transparency such that that cross-border becomes so seamless. So for us, it first came the problem, the conventional exports, building material, and then we build the marketplace on top of that. I'd love to also ask about timing. So I saw on LinkedIn, it was April 2020 that you launched the company. I remember, right, there were some interesting things going on in the world in April 2020. What was it like starting the company there right at the start of the pandemic? (laughs) Yeah. So I I started thinking about it in April 2020. We effectively launched the company formally in August 2020. I think for us, uh, quite frankly, Brett, um, COVID, uh, you know, while for the world, it was a very, very big, uh, had a negative side to it. But for us, it was a blessing in disguise because COVID literally ensured that sustainable businesses stay in the market. It got that need for a new edge technology which otherwise had supply chains not being disrupted, had cross-border travel not being disrupted, global fare would not have been in existence. So for me, it was a very, very, very exciting um, time, you know, professionally. Personally, of course, everybody had a lot of impact, you know, due to COVID. But professionally for global fare, I think when supply chain work disrupted because of COVID and especially in construction sector, which contributes to 13% of world GDP, right? With only 1%, 1.7% of technology investment into that sector. For us, it was a easy no-brainer that, you know, this is a sector, very, very sustainable money-making. You always, there's a huge cost arbitrage in the mix. And uh, there is a customer waiting to get the product. There's a supplier, small supplier waiting to send the product. And tech is the only thing missing. 
Do you find that the suppliers are open to trying out new platforms or is that difficult to convince the suppliers to give it a shot? Because it's such a high margin and uh, such a pull-based market, quite frankly, suppliers, we work with small to medium scale suppliers. For mm-hmm. these guys, if, if there is no heck in between, it becomes almost impossible to get access to that cross-border quality demand. Right. So in our sector, especially, it's not a matter of adoption, right? Adoption is not that big a problem versus retention. And that retention is wherein the efficient tech as the intuitive, efficient and very, very seamless tech that you can build is what matters. What about from a, a trust perspective? So I think if you look at you know, any like, of the consumer marketplaces like eBay, you know, there's a certain level of fraud that they have to factor in and, and try to defend against. And then I think even Alibaba, if you look at you know, from like the business perspective, I've heard of brands having issues there where you know, they buy products and they don't work out as planned. What does that look like on your end, just from a you know, fraud defense perspective to ensure that you know, nothing negative is happening in the marketplace? Right. So a very interesting question, right? So that is the value that Global Fair brings in, right? So we are not just a marketplace, we are a managed marketplace, right? So what that means is for a customer, it's Global Fair's guarantee and warranty in place. Then, you know, it is if in a factory you define man, machine, material, method, other than machine, everything is owned or controlled by Global Fair, right? So what that means is QC is a very, very big part of whatever we send. These are big ticket value items, right? So our average order size is around $120,000, right? So these are big ticket items in which pre-production, in-production and post-production, pre-shipment, there are four levels of QC that happens. The second part, to the customer, there is a guarantee, warranty, no questions asked warranty on by Global Fair, which is back-to-back supplied by suppliers, right? So that's the value that Global Fair provides, a very, very big value and reliability piece when buying from cross-border. And what's a typical order size? Is it 100 grand? Is it a million? Is it 5 million? Like, what's a typical order? $120,000 is our average order size and can go up till $1.2 million in a single order. Wow. And yeah. from a traction and adoption perspective, or just a growth perspective, are there any numbers that you can share? So, you know, what kind of customers we deal with are usually big, large-scale multifamily contractors and commercial hospitality contractors. And what the idea of Global Fair is to provide all finishes, everything inside four walls, ready to install. So what that means is countertop, cabinet, floor, doors, windows, the entire consumables, hardwares that are needed, all job pack ready to install, deliver to job site, right? So our customers are big, large-scale contractors. From that standpoint, in terms of growth, we are growing at around 110% month on month. You know, very, very amazing growth in this sector to an extent that last uh, month we were a bit positive. But any customer that comes with us, right? So Versus first order, a customer orders 8x times in just an annual scale. Wow. What do you attribute to that growth and that success? I'm sure any founder listening in is saying, yeah, I want that. I want to grow like that too. (laughs) What have you gotten right? What do you think you've just really nailed here? I think one of the biggest was uh, for Global Fair that worked was agility. You know, so when we started, we did not start with just this idea and just this customer base, right? It took time to get here, but we pivoted. We changed our model so quick and so fast that uh, we beat the industry, quite frankly, in terms of how it was developing. For example, we when we started, we started with a cross-border 
marketplace for seven categories, not just building materials. Very soon, four months in, we realized that, you know, this is a supply. The moat in this business would be supply, right? So we said, let's pick up just one category, grow that, and then we'll figure out, you know, rest of it. So we drop all the other categories. We said sub- construction is what we know. Let's let's just pick that up and, you know, go with it. The second we said, let's understand exports and construction. So we first went to a customer we knew was already importing, right? And from there, now what we do today is end in B2B space and consumer in construction and factory in construction. And it's just global fare in between, right? So we disintermediated the supply chain in just two years of existence, two years, four months effectively of existence. We've changed our model twice reached the right customer segment who is now so today we operate at 98 percent retention ratios right 98 percent repeats so effectively every customer that is coming is staying with global fair so i think nailing that right customer and right business model and a lot of times i've seen founder get too attached with the first problem statement that they start with and you know that is one key advice that i always give everyone that you know Keep experimenting till you don't find that sustainable customer and model that you will go after and then go deep in that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. How did you make that decision to narrow it down to like that one category? How'd you select that category? Because I think for a lot of different founders, that's always the hard part, right? Is to say, okay, you know, we're going to forget everything else right now, even though there's a lot of opportunity and we're going to focus on this one thing. What information did you use to make that decision? So very early on, Brett, we realized that in this business, as you said, right, quality is a big thing. So at scale, what would be our mode of the business? The mode would be supply, right? The quality supply and scalable supply. So we said if we were to, you know, take a hold on supply, it would not be something that we can do for five categories or seven categories. It has to be a single category in which we know in and out. So we, with that, we said, what is that category we know about, right? So we did do one or two orders in other categories as well. But we said, what is that big margin category, you know, in which the tech will make most sense, you know, will be one of the biggest initiators for this exponential growth and what we know. So first target was for us because supply was more, where do we know supply? Since I come from that quartz manufacturing family, I knew a lot about supply, right? I knew a lot about material. I knew firsthand few customers as well from which we could learn. So we we just went with it that, you know, this is the category we would start with. Supply is what we know. And this is a category for which we know the supply. And let's let's go with it. And we'll, we'll experiment it for two, three months and see how, how it's picking up. If it does not, then, you know, we'll, we'll switch on to the next idea. But we always had an idea B and idea C as well with us. What would you say has been the biggest challenge you face so far? The biggest challenge, I would say, is especially because it's a blessing and a challenge both in disguise, right? This is a sector which is very, very conventional. So while on the supplier side, the adoption in technology is not that big a concern versus on the buyer side, because this is a legacy relationship based industry, the 
tech adoption is not one of the most intuitive things that you would find in customers in US. So what we would then ensure that our, our technology is extremely intuitive and to an extent that it directly impacts their top line and bottom line, right? So we don't need to sell that, hey, use the tech versus it becomes a pull-based sell wherein, you know, they're using the tech irrespective of us pushing for it. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd mentioned this in the intro and I'd love to dive a little deeper into it. So you've raised $22 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? You know, one of the biggest things I think we learned was... Uh, a, founders should invest in storytelling, right? It's a skill not appreciated enough, but it's a skill that is most important when you're fundraising, especially in early stages. So that's first. Second, always chase customers versus chasing investors. For me, I think investor would always be an outcome versus an ancillary outcome versus the primary focus. In the early stages, especially seed or series A, you get invested on the team and idea, right? And it's the highest bet that an investor takes. And in that, the execution kicks in later on. So invest a lot in communicating your idea and your team. And second, invest in customer. Ensure that you understand that customer right and the investor and investment will just follow. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything that you've learned throughout the last three and a half years, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? First, uh, be in customer markets more. I relocated in customer market, I think, one and a half years into the company. I would always say that, you know, be in customer markets on day one if that's needed or even, you know, day minus 30, <laughs> right? And then then come up because then in that case, maybe you reach at that right problem statement and right business model faster, right? So that's one. And second, invest in storytelling more. These are the two advisors. You asked one, I gave you two. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done to become a better storyteller? You know, we, we bring on a lot of VCs as well and do interviews with them. And I always ask them, what's the number one skill that you recommend, uh, you, know, you look for in founders and I would say like 70% of them do say storytelling. So it's a very important skill, but I think you were talking about that earlier. It's a very hard skill if you're not naturally good at it. So what have you done to you know, refine your storytelling skills? I think I'm still working on it, Brett, quite frankly. But one of the most important things I think helped me was, A, before you are going into a call, you should know what person you're talking to, right? So if let's say, to give you, put this into perspective, right? So if I'm talking to an Asia-based investor, I would be pitching them manufacturing as a service, as a story, right? But if let's say I am talking to a Western investor or a UK or a US-based investor, I would be talking about labor productivity and construction automation as a story, right? So it's important that you understand, especially when you're talking to investors, what kind of investor you're going in with the second is I always, before I go into any meetings in which I know that storytelling would be extremely important, I do make, uh, you know, three to five top pointers around which I would revolve my, you know, conversation. And that always helps bring the entire conversation, you know, to a closure, right? And get the other person take those four or five key takeaways, which you want them to go ahead with. Mm -hmm. Super useful. Now, final question here for you before we wrap up. So let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? 
be the Alibaba for B2B cross for B2B Southeast Asia. <laughs> but I told you it in the very start, right? Our vision is to make cross-border as hassle-free and as seamless as buying from a next-door neighbor, right? And build that through tech and be the largest cross-border supplier. Amazing. I love the vision. I love the approach. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founder listening in wants to just follow along with your journey and, and maybe continue to learn from you as you execute on this vision, where should they go? So I am active on LinkedIn. I'm also active. They can email me as well. I can share with you my connect, you know. So I am very constantly active on LinkedIn. I'm active on uh, Instagram, on Twitter. And the best place to approach is always emails, you know, email directly. And I would be happy to help anyone who, see, I myself lived this journey, been in this journey, have navigated it uh, so far. So, you know, I, I would really love anyone who is, you know, looking for any help, any support, any feedback at all. Amazing. Well, maybe you'll have a bunch of founders in your inbox here once this goes live. Thank you again for joining. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I've learned a lot about this market that I knew zero about. So I appreciate you coming on and educating me and educating the audience. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. I love the conversation. Thank you. All right. Let's keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.